Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Red Wings tickets prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime does, and they track prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then show you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. It's an easy two-tap checkout. Simple, quick, easy-to-navigate app. More than 12 million fans have already downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, and I have just been informed that the trade was one for one. Prashant Iyer, care to comment? Man, I'm so ready for the Taylor Hall deal to be done. This is the new one for one. I'm just waiting for the Bob McKenzie tweet to come back out, replace it. I'm going to use that over and over. Robbie Fabry for Jacob De La Rose was the trade, of course, that we are referencing. Came out... Uh, very late at night, as is beginning to become the theme for Steve Eiserman trades, came out, what was it, Wednesday night after the, the Rangers game? Tuesday night, something like that? Yeah, I think it was uh, Wednesday night right after the Rangers game. And he did not waste any time making an impact with two power play goals in the Red Wings win over the Bruins, which came somewhat out of nowhere after four four-goal losses, and then the game-winning assist Sunday night against Vegas, three points in two games, not bad at all. Uh, what were your kind of initial impressions of the Fabry trade? And, and then how about updating him after uh, two games in which he, he looked pretty productive? Yeah, the, the initial reaction was, okay, and, and what else? Um, because I, I just couldn't believe that the deal was straight up Jacob De La Rose for uh, Robbie Fabry. And I think a lot of that had to do with my initial recollection of Fabry, which was when he was a rookie had an excellent uh, rookie season, scored 18 goals that rookie year, had a great playoff run uh, with the Blues that season. And I had kind of blocked out a lot of the injury issues that he had had. So he's torn his ACL twice. Um, and I hadn't really paid much attention to his performance. So the initial thing was I was completely shocked because I was like, there's literally no way this trade just happened. And Jacob De La Rose was what netted Robbie Fabry. But then as I started digging in the results, you know, from St. Louis's perspective, they, they had had a little bit of difficulty getting him into that top six part of the lineup. This is defending Stanley Cup champions. Fabry struggled a little bit um, to kind of find his game coming back from injury. Last season was kind of his first full season back. He looked a little bit better, but still not where he was as a rookie. And so he seemed expendable on that end. Um, but for Detroit, that's exactly the kind of deal you want to be making. You want to find those teams that have expendable parts that could be better than what they actually are in the right situation and find ways to get those talent, uh, those players. And so Eiserman's done that twice now with Perlini and now Fabry. And after two games, well, this is now the greatest trade in NHL history. <laughs> Something like that. It's, but it, what it definitely is, is it's, it's the logical, almost idealized version of, of the type of trades that Eiserman's been making so far as Red Wings GM, which are really low risk, pretty pretty low in terms of cost of, of acquisition, with some upside. And I think he's got the most upside of, of any of these guys that they've acquired. 
uh, maybe right there with Brendan Perlini. But but I think the track record Fabry has as an 18 goal scorer, his first you know rookie year in the NHL, is pretty substantial. And and I think you know Jacob De La Rosa is an NHL player, and I think he'll play for St. Louis, and and I think he'll probably go grow to be a little bit more appreciated than he was in Detroit, just because the way that you know playoff type hockey magnifies the importance of things like penalty killing. But even then, like for the Red Wings to be able to go and get a guy who St. Louis really wasn't using, or or at least not in the way that they could, that they you know needed to be using him to maximize him, it's it's like you said, it's the perfect kind of move for Eiserman to be making, and and it pays dividends right away, maybe a little bit in part because he was junior teammates with Tyler Bertuzzi, they went to the Memorial Cup when they were both with Guelph, and they connect Bertuzzi to Fabry for those first two goals against Boston, and. Uh, that's some real excitement. That's some real excitement added to the season, and I think for Fabry to then make that cross-ice pass to spring Anthony Mantha for what was a pretty incredible shot for the game winner against Vegas uh, only adds to it. Yeah, and I think, you know, Fabry adds a lot of pieces to, or really, he solidifies a lot of the holes that Detroit had. And so you and I have talked about, you know, how does Detroit round out their top six for a while, it had been elevating Darren Helm. There was an experiment with Adam Ernie. They simply couldn't find just that other guy who could slot into the top six and really start moving people into their right positions um, within the lineup. And so, you know, for a while, that was a huge problem. And so, you know, Detroit wasn't able to figure out what to do. They go out and get Brendan Perlini. Perlini hasn't really gotten that opportunity, but now Fabry. He's able to skate with Athens. Fabry's game is a lot of speed, a lot of flash, a lot of scoring ability. He can skate with Athens and generate some chances at five on five. I think more importantly, you know, you got to see this a little bit in the Boston game. He actually helps solidify the talent mix on the power plays, I think. Yep. Getting him to uh, kind of put, go into that slot position. And you saw Detroit really start to use that bumper position or that middle position of the 1 3 1 power play a lot more in that Boston game and to a certain extent against Vegas when they were able to get zone time. What that really does is it breaks down the structure of the penalty kill by getting those guys to bite high. And then what the wings were doing was they were basically drawing Marchand and Bergeron all the way out to the top. They were dropping the passes down to Bertuzzi on the half boards. He'd take the puck down the goal line and then Fabry would get himself right in the slot. Two quick goals. I think he's really helped solidify that talent distribution so now you have enough talent on both power play units to be able to roll them in that fashion as opposed to you know having to run one power play unit or having to have run two ineffective power play units. What's funny is I don't even think he was playing the slot on that like or like was supposed to be like I think that was just a natural rotation which even speaks to your point a little further like I'm pretty sure they have him running the opposite half wall from Manta and everything had just shifted because Bertuzzi ended up who's the, normally their net front guy out wide I think Larkin must have gone down toward the net and that left Fabry to kind of rotate into the slot and that is a difference like Athanasiu can do that but like Tarharosi wasn't going to be moving out into the slot in that shooter's role at least not naturally so I I think you're dead on in what you're saying in terms of what it can help get out of the balance on that power play unit Um, it's made a big difference the power play looked way better tonight and last night uh, than it than it had previously. Now they still had one go at the power play uh, Sunday night that I didn't think looked that great. That was at the end of the first or second period. I don't remember which one. Uh, and that did that was not a great look for the power play. But all told, I think he he really helps them. He spreads out the talent pretty well. 
that uh, that's a nice move. What what other than Robbie Fabry? What did you see out of these two games this weekend, Boston and Vegas, that that stood out to you? I think the thing that stood out to me is Detroit didn't really look out of place. Um, it's not like they were shellacked and they required some heroic goaltending effort um, in order to stay competitive. I mean, if you look at uh, just the numbers from an outside standpoint. Uh, against Vegas, Detroit had a 5-on-5 five five expected goals for percentage, and this is from uh, the Evolving Hockey website, of 54%. Against Boston, they were at 58%. These are two of the best teams in the league, and Detroit controlled kind of the quality of shots um, at 5-on-5, five five, which is not something I was expecting to happen. And so they really didn't look out of place. I think Bernier had to be particularly good against Boston. I do think that Boston game... Could have been a lot more out of hand if not for a couple of phenomenal saves by Bernier. I think the game against Vegas, Bernier didn't have to be as good just because the event, um, the game in general was just low event um, for most of the the 60 minutes. But overall, I think the number one takeaway was at 5-on-5, five five, the team looked competent and they got some special team support and were able to pull out a couple of wins. Yeah, basically opposite games from that perspective. The Boston game, I remember tweeting at one point like, pretty exciting first period here and the Vegas game I was amazed that I was still awake after the two periods like if the <laughs> shots were 10 to 9 or something it was crazy um so like opposite games but I think in both cases exactly like you're saying the Red Wings really held their own at 5 on 5 I think uh you know the Boston game I was most impressed with with the way the Red Wings special teams showed up and, and that was something that you and I have talked at length I wrote about it this week that's an area they've been hugely let down this year because while they haven't been great at 5-on-5, five five, they haven't been awful at 5-on-5, five five, and yet they were getting awful results overall, and I think a lot of that could be attributed to special teams. I thought the special teams was a big reason they were able to to get the Boston win. They had a couple power play goals, obviously, from Fabry, and then at least one huge kill late in that game in the third period. Sunday night, uh, you know, the power play was fine and you know it looked looked pretty you know improved from where it had been but but I think they just like you said kept it really low event um, and then they find a way to eke it out on that Mantha goal that game looked destined for overtime basically from the second Detroit scored their second goal because how on earth was anyone going to score another goal Bernier ended up having to make another huge save toward the end of that game too uh you know or was it Bernier or was it was it Bertuzzi I think it was Bertuzzi clearing him out I don't know what happened late in that play I think it was Bernier who actually made a save yeah, on okay. it from the angle that I saw. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But yeah, so so Bernier comes up big. He gets both the starts, by the way. That's something to monitor going forward. Um, I think the the message from Jeff Blaschel has kind of been neither guy had really seized the job, so they they let Bernier stay in there. Um, Going to be curious to see how they handle this out west. They're going out there for three games. What the divisional workload is. I think now Bernier has started nine. Howard has started ten. They've been going pretty much every other until this last week. Howard got a couple games in a row, and then Bernier got a couple games in a row. We'll see if it's a hot hand thing or or, or what. But, yeah, those are my big takeaways from the games. I didn't think uh, – I thought Philip Peronic was, you know, characteristically really impactful down the stretch in this one for the Red Wings. Uh, he had that one play where he kind of delayed and, and almost if it wasn't – I think if it was anyone but Mark Stone on him, would have got a pretty good look at the net on that one. Yeah, I mean, Philip Ronick, I thought, had another excellent game. And again, he's, you know, loudly demonstrating that he's probably Detroit's most complete defenseman with Danny DeKaiser out of the lineup right now. And so, uh, you know, the Wings have relied heavily on him. I think what stood out to me was just how much he's jumping into the play, but he's not doing it 
in scenarios that put his team in a disadvantageous position. Um, you know, there's, I think, a sequence maybe late in the third where, I mean, he's parked right on the goal line, and he knows he's got support up top with just an advocator, you know, sliding back and covering him. He's jumping in at the right situations. There's so many different times where I see the whistle go and who's standing right in front of the neck, but it's Philip Ronick. He knows he knows instinctively when he should take those chances and when he shouldn't, and I think that's just been such a growth uh, in his game, and I think it's leading to him getting, you know, a lot more trust from the coaching staff, starting to get a lot of the bigger minutes, and really, you know, it's all deserved. I mean, he looks every bit as good as we were hoping he could be, and I think he's he's got a legitimate chance to be a, you know, a, a solid top four defenseman for Detroit to build around. Which is big, and that's something that they've been missing, and especially to have that from a young player, uh, that's one of the more promising developments for the Red Wings, I think, in the early season. We did. Uh, we haven't podcasted since the Rangers game either. Is there anyone, anything about that game that you felt was particularly notable before we get going on to here and, and, and finish up with this weekend? You know, I mean, I think we'll probably revisit this before the end of the episode, but I think the highlight from that is goaltending, and I think yeah. it was another awful game from Jimmy Howard. I think he's really struggled in his last handful of starts, kind of like you said, you know, Blaschel said neither guy had really seized the job. Well, I, I do think to a certain extent Howard lost the job, um, with his performance over the last three games, he's given up four or more in each of his last three games, um, really not keeping the wings in the game. And I think that's all you can really say about the New York game. The wings were looked really good at five on five, I thought. You just had a lot of pucks that shouldn't have gone in the net that went in the net. Yep, I think that's right. I think, you know, it is, it's always tough with goaltending, and especially because even when a specific shot may not look that hard. I think there is something that's difficult about playing goalie for a team that's that's not doing well. So I'm I'm conscious of that, but I also think, you know, a couple of the goals against Nashville did not strike me as as pucks Jimmy Howard couldn't have stopped that got in. A couple of the shots against uh the Rangers, you know, obviously as the one that's like a big pop-up rebound that, you know, it was 3 to 1 at the time, the Red Wings were on a power play. I don't even know who it was that came in and shot it off him and bounced up high, and then they it became 4-1, and the game was basically over at that point. So not not Jimmy Howard's finest hour, and, and Jonathan Bernier coming back with two pretty strong games, all things considered. He didn't have to make a ton of saves against Vegas, but he made a couple really big ones. Um, I think that's something to monitor. It's definitely – I would not be surprised to see, you know, Bernier, if, if, if this keeps up, Bernier start to nudge ahead and starts a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't either, and I think this is kind of the central question about the Red Wings that I think you and I have gotten a lot of questions about um, over the last week or so is, you know, we've talked about the Wings 5-on-5 five five performance. You put out a great article uh, earlier this week kind of detailing they aren't as bad as their results indicate. You know, they've been reasonable at 5-on-5. Five five. They're middle of the road. You know, they're around the 15-20 to 20 uh, 15th to 20th in the league, depending on which expected goals model you're looking at um, from that standpoint. But, you know, for a time, they were just getting blown out night after night. So, the you know, I got asked a great question by Jeff Rowaska, which is, you know, what what is the deal here? Like, is it bad goaltending? Is it large swings and goal differential? Is, is it shooting talent? Um, something along those lines. And so I think the goaltending piece we, we really should highlight, you know, coming into tonight, um, tonight's game and this tonight being Sunday night against Vegas, uh, 
the Wings were fourth worst in the league in terms of goals saved above expected. So what that's basically saying is based on the quality of shots the Wings goaltenders have faced, how many goals have they given up more than should than they should have been given up based on the quality there. And so the Wings have actually given up 13 more goals um, above expected, which is fourth worst in the league, um, with Jimmy Howard being responsible for eight of those um, and that's good for 59th out of 64 goalies. And so I think that really drives home how little help they've gotten from goaltending. And, you know, if you get a couple of good games from Bernier like you did against Boston and Vegas, maybe the ship can start to right itself and the wings can kind of end up sliding back more into that 27th, 26th worst as opposed to dead last like they've been over the last couple of weeks. You mentioned the shooting talent point. How much of that is, do you think, behind the Red Wings shooting percentage? Because they are, you know, especially at five on five, I think it was like 6% coming into today. Yeah, and I mean, from a shooting perspective, uh, you know, the Wings were 30th in goals scored above expected at just about, they've scored 11 fewer goals than one would expect based on the quality of shots taken. And I think that is a really important point with expected goals is that it doesn't ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't factor in who took the shot. Um, and so Darren Helm taking a shot from a certain spot is very different than Alexander Ovechkin taking the same shot from the same spot with the same angle, you know, and so I think that's, that's very different. And I think that is a huge part of the wings, uh, kind of results what their expected goals is. I don't think you should necessarily expect the wings to score as much as they are expected to based on the quality of shots taken simply because I don't think their shooters are as good as NHL average. So they may end up a little bit below average, but I still don't think they're 11 goals below average like they are right now where they're 30th in the league. Um, So I think you can still expect that to correct to a certain extent, uh, maybe a little bit closer to being a couple of goals off. Um, But I do think that lack of shooting talent outside of guys like really Anthony Mantha and Andreas Athanasiu, I think are the two best shooters um, on the team. I think there's a steep drop-off after those two guys and then Dylan Larkin. Um, I think there's quite a bit of drop-off in talent there. And so even though they're getting chances that look good on paper, they're not necessarily as good because the players themselves don't have the same level of talent as maybe some of the other guys. Yeah. And, you know, I think at the time that I wrote the story for what was it, Thursday or Friday, um, the Red Wings were shooting like 6% and I think the median team. So whoever was 16th at the time was at like 84 the Red Wings might not be 8.4 good, but if they're like 7.5, that's still a quarter of the shots that they are basically getting to go in now, a quarter more going in. That's that's not nothing at all. Yeah, so that's not nothing at all. I think um, you know, you'll certainly expect the team to correct a little bit over the next few weeks, and I think you're starting to see some of that to a certain extent. They had good games against Boston, good games against Vegas. I think you started to see some of those bounces go their way that they hadn't really had. Like the Dylan Larkin wraparound against Boston where that puck kind of ricochets off of Bergeron's leg and goes in the back of the net. The Bowie goal against Vegas. The Bowie goal where he's (laughs) falling down and somehow slides a roller along the ice past Malcolm Subban. Unscreened roller. Um, Those are are shots that you weren't getting. Even the Mantha goal, right? That, That puck hits Subban in the hip. And ricochets out at an angle, but somehow catches the inside of the post and stays in. And so those were different breaks and bounces that you weren't getting early in the season that the Wings have gotten the last couple of nights. And so I do think all of that shooting talent will regress to the mean to a certain extent, although it may not come all the way back. Yep, absolutely. 
before we move move on to some other things, let's let's dig in a little bit deeper though on on Robbie Fabry, what he's brought so far and kind of his background. So, like we got into a little bit earlier, 2014 21st overall pick. He played with Tyler Bertuzzi and Junior in Guelph. They went a Memorial Cup run. They didn't win it. They went to the final. Um, and I think his draft season, he put up like 87 points or something like that in, in 60 games or so. Um, so this is a high pedigree guy and someone that Jeff Blaschel said the Red Wings had on their radar around draft time when they drafted Dylan Larkin. Uh, it would seem they made the right choice there, but still not a bad uh, consolation to now end up with both Larkin and Robbie Fabry, who to my eye looks like a guy who can play in the Red Wings top six. And you saw a little bit tonight, even on the top line. With Larkin and Bertuzzi, how would you like to see the Red Wings deploy Robbie Fabry? So this is going to be a wildly unpopular opinion, but I've been on the breakup that Bertuzzi-Larkin-Mantha line for most of the season because I do think Mantha is an exceptional play driver, and I think both Larkin and Mantha are the play drivers for this team. Where I'd like to see him deployed is kind of what the Wings were doing towards the end of the Vegas game, where they had a top line of Larkin, Bertuzzi, and Fabry, and then on the second line was Athanasiu, um, Philpola, and Mantha. And then they even mixed that up even a little bit more, dropping Mantha down to the third line to play with Nielsen and Perlini. I mean, they were really moving Mantha all over the lineup. But I think at the end of the day, my ideal situation would be getting Fabry up on that top line to play with Larkin and Bertuzzi. Because Fabry, you know, after doing a little bit of homework, he's not the most defensively responsible guy. I think you do have to put him in advantageous situations to sort of shelter him from being in an overly defensive scenario. And even though the Larkin line tends to match up against a lot of the team's top lines, I think they do a good job of doing of playing with the puck when they're in those situations. And so I think that would still be a, a favorable matchup for Fabry. And again, drop Mantha down to play with Athanasiu, continue to get Athanasiu going. You know, honestly, at that point, you can put Philpola on that line with them. Maybe you explore moving Perlini up and giving Athanasiu a run of more of the defensive center responsibilities. You know, I don't really know. But I think at least for those five, I'd like Fabry, Larkin, and Bertuzzi on the top line. And I'd like Mantha and Athanasiu to play together in some capacity. I almost think that you vary it based on who the opponent is. I think the reason that the Red Wings, in my opinion, can beat teams like the Bruins, like the Oilers, who have one super dominant line is because when you put that Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi line out there against them, it can do a lot. To, it can go a long way to neutralizing the other team's top line. In games like that, I think I would like to see the Red Wings keep those three together and then roll how they had uh, against Boston with Fabry and Athanasiu. But I, I like where you're going the other way. When it's a team like Vegas, it's a little bit deeper. You're not going to be able to rely on one line to do the majority of the lifting. I, I think dropping Mantha and Anthony, down with Athanasiu and Philpola, putting Fabry up there. Still keeps kind of the the general identity of that top line intact because Larkin and Bertuzzi are going to forecheck like crazy, even if maybe you lose a little bit of defensive uh, value swapping out Mantha for Fabry. The, the, I think the addition that you make by putting Mantha with Athanasiu is a way to, to, to match up against deeper teams. So I know a lot of people, myself included, sometimes think that the, the – the consistency is kind of the the real value. I definitely subscribe to that theory sometimes. I think the position that the Red Wings are in, they can't really afford to uh, to do that at all all the, all the time. And so I think that's how I would approach it. Um, but you know, the, the the big takeaway from that is that the Red Wings acquired a guy who they feel comfortable putting in their top six in those kind of situations. And to me, that's something that is 
you know, that's not small in terms of, of Iserman's moves so far. It might be the most notable. And a lot of people have been asking us if it may be kind of a, a canary in the coal mine or a sign of more moves to come, uh, with obviously the big name being Yese Pugliarvi from Edmonton. What, what do you think about that idea? The Red Wings are at 40 out of 50 contracts, so they can't really make too many more moves without giving up players who are under contract here. You could argue that they would really only ever want to do one more of those because if you find yourself 50 contracts, uh, you could really get fleeced if someone comes available and you decide you really want them. But where are you at on the idea of, of Eiserman trying to make more of these moves? Names like Julius Honka, Josh Hosang have been in my mentions very steadily since the Fabry deal went down. Uh, where are you at on that? Yeah, I mean, you know with me, everything comes back to Carolina, right, when I have to yep. talk about how to do this rebuild. And so... You know, one of the things I've highlighted about what Carolina did over the last few years as they were trying to retool their team was they took the opportunity to take these flyers on these guys that Eiserman has done so far, the 20 to 24-year-old to see, hey, if I put you in a different situation with different line mates and different responsibilities in a different system, can I get more out of you? And if not, well, it's a low-risk deal. It's a low-risk move for me to make. Um and I can quickly get myself out of it. And so Perlini is an excellent example of that, being a restricted free agent at the end of the year. You know, uh, Robbie Fabry's again, another excellent uh, addition in that same vein. And I think Jesse Pugliarvi would be a great uh, addition in that same vein. I mean, he's gone over to uh, Finland, and he's torn it up in the top league over there. He's got 20 points in 18 games. Uh, and he's coming from a high pedigree. I mean, this is guy. This is a guy who clearly has a ton of skill. That when he got into the NHL with Edmonton, he didn't get a. You know, his situation was kind of a little bit difficult. I don't know that he got a fair shake of a full time top six NHL job. And I know you and I have differed about how that should be given, when that should be given to to players. But I think he's a guy who's got just loads of talent. And if you can buy low on him from Edmonton and and get him to come over and get him to play. I mean, I believe he's got an out clause um, with his team in, uh, in Finland so that he can come back over whenever. Um, I think that's a move you do. Julius Honk, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, hesitant to make the same deal just because he is a little bit older than uh, Pugliarvi. So Pugliarvi's 21, you know, at this point. Honka's got him by a couple of years. Um you know, I think he's three years older than uh, Pugliarvi there. Josh Hosang is another guy that I would also be willing to give a shot. I think he's a great, you know, name that you brought up. He's really torn it up in the AHL uh, previously and just hasn't been able to get a consistent shake in New York. And so, you know, again, these are guys that if you can get away with um, buying low for, you know, a De La Rose or kind of offloading the plethora of bottom six guys or using multiples of draft picks. So, you know, the Wings have an extra second-round draft pick to get these guys. I mean, I think it's a reasonable thing to attempt, given that it's a low-risk deal overall. Yeah, my stance on this, I don't think I'd be, you know, I don't think I'd be thinking Honka's uh, worth giving up the the contract spot for. Like, you know, you're pretty close to the cap there. Hosang, I don't think so either. Pugliarvi, though... Uh, 100%. I think that that would be a uh, worthwhile move to make. Now, what Edmonton is going to want for him is another question, and I don't have the answer to that uh, as we sit here today. I, I don't think they're going to give up on a guy they took fourth overall three years ago too readily, so I don't think you're looking at maybe the same uh, cheap acquisition that you've gotten here in Perlini 
and uh, and now in Robbie Fabry. But that said, I think you could justify a higher price too because of what the upside on Puliarvi is. Um, I do think that you could bring him over and give him top six ice time. I don't I don't think I'd have a big problem with that. Um, you know, I, I just think that, th- that that's the kind of swing you take, and especially a guy who's pretty much made clear he doesn't want to be at Edmonton. They're going to have to do something with him, and there's three weeks until it's December 1st. Uh, that's something I would, you know, I would think that would be a smart move for the Red Wings. And I, I don't, I can't say that I know the likelihood of it, but, uh, it, it's definitely a move that fits their MO right now. And, and maybe the, if, if we're saying that Fabry is the, you know, the idealized version of it, Pooley might even take that one step further. Yeah. I mean, Pooley seems, seems like a very attractive acquisition again, you know, like you said, if you can get them for the right price, you know, there's no telling what Iserman uh, is going to be able to get away with giving up. There's no telling what Holland's going to want uh, from Detroit, given that he does have a pretty good understanding of what the Wings have in all the different locations. You know, the other way you can certainly go, the other way you could go about getting players like that is, you know, hanging on a little bit closer to the trade deadline, finding those teams that might be a little cap-strapped uh, in the offseason that may want to add a piece that could be part of their future and therefore are going to look to unload somebody um, at that time to, to free up um, some cap space for the offseason. You know, that's another area the Wings could certainly look into um, in terms of acquiring other talent. Boston's a team that stands out to me like that, where they've got a couple of key free agents, Charlie Coyle, Jake DeBrusque, um, Tory Krug, that are going to be there in the offseason. They're going to have to spend a lot of money um, on all three of those guys, all three of those guys are probably going to get raises. And so can you fleece them for one of their prospects? Can you fleece them for one of those guys um, if they want to make turn around and make another deal somewhere else to get a, some top-end talent? I think that's another avenue that Eiserman could certainly explore. But at the end of the day, I think he's done an excellent job of adding potential talent for very minimal cost. Yep, I would tend to agree. What... Uh... So what would you give up for Pugliari? Just I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't talk about this, but what what's like a what do you think would be a reasonable um, higher end cost? Like you 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 do it, but you wouldn't be thrilled about it. Um, I think probably the most I would want to pay would be a second round pick, and if possible, I would try to get that to be a second round pick that's not this year. Um, just because I, I'm of the mindset that I like to hang on to picks within a draft year, particularly when you know how deep or how good a draft may be. And so, um, the wings do have an extra second this year, an extra third this year. So it's not the worst thing in the world if they were to give up one of those, but ideally maybe a 2021 second round pick or 2022 second round pick, maybe the most I would want to do, um, for Pugliarvi, given that you're unlikely by an odd standpoint, to land a player of his caliber in that round. Would you do Svechnikov in a second? You know, that's a that's an interesting proposal. I might do Svechnikov in a third. I don't know that I would do Svech in a second, but, you know, Svechnikov from a timeline standpoint, you know, he's a couple years um, older than Pugliarvi, if I believe, because uh, I believe Svechnikov's actually 23. 20, yep. And Pugliarvi's 21. Um, you know, he's another guy that I think his timeline in the Wings organization is kind of quickly running out if he's not able to solidify himself in the organization at the NHL level. And so I think he certainly has become expendable to a certain degree. 
um, to where losing him isn't the end of the world. But I still think from a pricing standpoint, I'd probably be more comfortable with him plus a third versus him plus a second. All right. Just setting some parameters. Nothing uh, yeah. Nothing too serious, but figured it was worth going into. Do you uh, have anything else you want to get into before we go to the listener questions? No, I think we touched on most everything so far. I mean, still just a little bit in shock from everything. Yeah, it's been an interesting weekend, and I think it's the kind of weekend that maybe we allude to when we talk about the Red Wings. You know, when we talk about regression, we're not saying they're going to regress to being a cup contender or a playoff team, but it does kind of mean for every time you're you're livid about a five to one loss against the Rangers, and you look a little bit deeper and you go, okay, maybe this isn't quite. Um, reflective of, of how things have been going that probably means you might get a game or two like this and, and it's important to stay level-headed with it and understand that you know as much as as nice as it might be to believe right like Robbie Fabry hasn't turned the Red Wings into a team that can night in night out go toe-to-toe with Boston and Vegas and win but you know it, it's certainly the kind of situation where I think he helped and I think maybe also the product of the the kind of statistical evening out that we can always expect to see uh, in small samples over the course of a year. Yeah, I mean, exactly. All right, let's get into the questions. I wanted to start with one from Cody J, uh, who's asking about the expansion draft. And he's kind of saying, do you think Eisenman will make deals ahead of the expansion or opportunities to use the expansion draft to move contracts or make moves uh, toward the rebuilding efforts? It's a little bit broad, but I, I think there's a it's a good topic to get into right now as the Red Wings have acquired so many younger RFA, you know, pending RFA types that, that now I think we probably have to start factoring in uh, as we talk about the expansion draft and, and what the Red Wings' plans might be for that, I don't, um, you know, I have I did a list last year about who kind of the protected list I thought would be if it was that day. Uh, that's shifted a little bit since then. Obviously, Zadina not getting called up for 10 games last year means he does not have to be protected. I think I had uh, either Gustav Lindstrom or Vili Sarajarvi protected at that time. I would not be sweating either of those guys being exposed if the expansion draft were today. But where are you at? What do you think about Eiserman, uh where he sits right now in, in the expansion draft and the opportunities that poses for him? I think as of now, it's a bit difficult to project just given the number of restricted free agents that the Wings have right now. Because um, you're talking about at the end of next offseason, uh, that's when I think you're thinking about your protection list. And so obviously, the important thing right now is the Wings have rid themselves of the no-move clauses so they're not mandated to protect anybody. I believe in the last expansion draft, they had to protect Franz Nielsen because the first two years of his deal were a uh, no move. Um, but in this round, he's down a modified no trade clause. So he wouldn't need to be protected. So obviously you're going to protect Dylan Larkin. You're going to protect Anthony Mantha if you re-sign him. You're going to protect Andreas Athanasiu if you re-sign him. And you're protecting Tyler Bertuzzi if you re-sign him. And those are the easy four that you can say you're going to protect so far. And so by the expansion draft rules, you had seven forwards, three defensemen, and a goalie, or you had eight skaters in total. As of right now, you know, from a defenseman standpoint, you're going to protect Philip Bronick. Dennis Shalaski is a little bit more variable, although I think you'd likely protect him. And then it'll come down to a question of the expansion status uh, eligibility for Zadina and for Valeno and for Rasmussen, if those three end up being your final uh, forwards, or if the wings are better off to just protect eight skaters. Either way, I think it's a little bit difficult to get a full picture um, as to who the wings may protect or project uh, project to protect at that time. 
uh, given just the number of unknowns that are available. But I think, you know, it's it's a vital question to be thinking about um, from a structuring standpoint. And I think to kind of tackle the second piece of the question was, would he make any deals ahead of time? I guess the way I'm reading into this, and Max, you can tell me if I'm reading into it correctly, is, is the question kind of geared, um, kind of focusing on would he make deals to get people to take certain players? Yeah, I think that's that's basically the phrasing. It says to possibly move contracts or make moves to forward the rebuild effort. Gotcha. Yeah. So, from, so open-ended. From that, you know, from that standpoint, I don't know that there's anybody that vitally would need to be taken um, to optimize the wings performance uh for that season because again i think you know the earliest we could project the wings to be a playoff contender would probably be 2021 2022 which should be that first season for seattle if i'm remembering correctly Mm -hmm. um and so you know the only contracts that are really on the books for that season are dylan larkin who would have that year and then he would have 2022 2023 that would be the last year franz nielsen's deal so i mean you could certainly I don't know that I would make a deal just to get somebody to take him for that last year. You'd have two more years for Justin Abdelkader. So Abdelkader has 2021, 2022, and then 2022, 2023. And then you've got one year of DeKaiser. But outside of that, nobody else is really signed at that point to say that you could, you should take those. The only one I'd consider would be Justin Abdelkader, but it'd be entirely uh, dependent on... Um, the wings likelihood of being a contender that season. And if they truly needed those 4.2 million, because again, from a, uh, you know, from a loyalty standpoint, from a culture standpoint, Alex Cater has been here for a really long time. It'd be a shame to see him, even though he's, he hasn't really lived up to the contract, not his fault. It'd be a shame to see him move for those two years. If you didn't truly need those 4.2 million to turn yourself into a playoff contender, but he'd be the only guy I'd really consider. Yeah, I think for me that one of the big takeaways from the last expansion draft was pretty much any team that tried to avoid uh, having a player like selected and, and making a deal to avoid that got fleeced. And I don't think that's something the Red Wings should really uh, devote a whole lot of energy to to trying to make deals in order to you know have have the other team take certain Seattle take certain players from them in exchange for whatever it may be. What I do think would be an interesting approach though is as teams start to do their top to bottom assessments and maybe this really starts next season and into next off season uh that being the 2021 off season uh if there are guys that a team thinks it's going to lose in the expansion draft rather than dealing with Seattle and saying hey we'll give you this guy to not take this guy or or to take this guy instead wouldn't it be a kind of a in the interest of the rebuild for someone like Steve Eiserman to call that same team and say hey uh, rather than you have to give something up to not, you know, lose this guy, why don't you just trade that guy to me and I'll give you something that you don't have to protect? Like, to me, that seems like another way, another variation on the same theme of of players that a team maybe doesn't have immediate uh, use for or can't protect or can't, you know, utilize in the in the way that it might like to. Offer an asset that doesn't need to be protected, whether that's a young prospect, someone that hasn't made their debut yet, a pick, something like that. Um, that seems like a way to me to weaponize the expansion draft for Detroit's benefit if, if that's what they want to do. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a brilliant idea because, first off, dealing with Seattle terrifies me. The analytics department they've already put together, they haven't even started playing, and they probably have the second best analytics department next to Carolina. And so they're 
they're already terrifying from the buy-in that they've got from the top down that I'd be real hesitant to make any sort of deals with them knowing that I'm probably getting fleeced on the back end. Um, and second, you know, to your point, you start looking at the teams that are loaded. Look at look at Tampa. Who is Tampa going to protect? Uh, even if they go seven forwards, three defensemen, and a goalie, um, you know, there's there's still talent there. Same thing in Boston. Same thing in, in Vegas now. Carolina. Um, right, Carolina. Those are teams you want to be calling and saying, hey, don't deal with Seattle because you're going to get fleeced. Deal with me. And I'll at least give you something. So I think that's, a that's again, a brilliant way of adding some stuff, particularly because the way it looks right now, and, again, there's a lot of unknowns. There's the potential that, you know, hey, the Wings win the draft lottery and you get Alexi Lafreniere, and then you have to protect him because he plays two seasons. Um, you know, and then maybe you have to protect Zadina and Volano, depending on how they perform. And so there's a lot of unknowns. But if the Wings really enter a scenario where they don't necessarily have to protect out a full like they don't have seven, three, and one that they already know they want to protect. I think that's a brilliant strategy to add talent. Yeah. All right. So that is our uh, first notes on the expansion draft. I'm sure we'll get a lot more into that stuff down the line. Uh, moving on to some of the questions. We got a lot on, on Robbie Fabry, uh, but I think one of the ones that I think maybe most projectable going forward is from Don, who asks, will any of the newly acquired players be moved before the deadline? The team has 14 RFAs currently, so who's most likely to be moved? I'm going to amend that question a little bit so that it's not just about trades, but the 14 RFAs is a legitimate... uh, That's a conversation starter because they're probably not going to be able to bring all these RFAs back. And I think you start looking at them. You got Mantha, Athanasiu, Bertuzzi. Assuming that there's no trades, all three of those guys are must-signs. But then you also got N, Fabry, Perlini, Ernie, Hirose... Uh, Madison Bowie, where, where are you at on kind of this RFA situation the Red Wings have? Maybe the most R- eventful RFA summer that I can remember. Yeah, to be quite honest, I can't remember a team having this many restricted free agents. And, and so the restricted free agency process is a little bit interesting. Usually you'll give a qualifying offer. You have a period of time to negotiate. Certain restricted free agents are eligible for arbitration. Um and then if you end up, you know, obviously other teams like we saw this past offseason can offer sheet those players and you have a certain period of time to match. Um, you know, the only so the Wings have a handful that are arbitration eligible. And so that's Mantha, Athanasiu, Bertuzzi, Ernie, N, and Bowie are arbitration eligible. So is Dominic Turgeon. Um, but the rest are not. So, I mean, the way I look at it is I don't know that all of these guys are going to get qualifying offers. I think the easy ones, obviously, are Mantha, Athanasiu, uh, Bertuzzi are going to be the easy ones. Fabry, likely. um, Perlini, likely as well. But beyond that, I think it gets a little bit dicier. I don't think the Wings would lose Svechnikov for anything, so I think he gets one. I don't think they brought Oliver Kasky over to lose him again for... Um, nothing. So I think he's one, but beyond that, I mean, sorry, Yarvi could, I could see the wings easily parting with him given the log jam. He hasn't really been able to ascend up, uh, in Grand Rapids. I could see Dominic Turgeon being jettisoned, Kuffner, you know, potentially being jettisoned or signed to an a, uh, AHL only contract. Um, I don't see Bowie back. I think he was just a stopgap from the Jensen trade until, you know, some of their other guys looked a little bit better. I think Hiroshi, you know, certainly looks like he would be back, although 
interestingly, one thing we forgot to mention was he was a healthy scratch the last two games. So I don't know if the organization's philosophy is shifting a little bit there and if he, he might end up spending some time down in Grand Rapids. And then Adam Ernie, I think, again, he's a solid uh, you know, third or fourth liner. I don't think we've seen anything more than that from him. I don't typically like to give those guys multi-year deals simply because those are the replaceable players that you should be able to replace with what you have in your development system. And so I think there's a real opportunity that the Wings maybe only keep you know, nine of those 14 at best. Yep, I think that, that, that makes sense, that, that ballpark. Um, I don't know exactly who will stay or who will go. I think the big takeaway is a lot of it's going to be decided by this season, right? Like a guy like Brendan Perlini, um, he's got the upside, but you're going to want him to show you something before you offer him a deal. Uh, Christopher N., Adam Ernie, those are guys who I think you can always find a place for them in your lineup, but it depends what they're looking for. If they you know, if they want to stick around and be in potentially a bottom six role. One of the reasons Ernie wanted to get out of Tampa was because he was down lineup and wanted a chance to show he could do more. I think he's gotten more ice time in Detroit than he had. Um, but, he's, you know, he's not been on the score sheet very much. And I, I think he had actually a pretty good game a couple games ago and maybe starting to turn it on a little bit. But um, still, he hasn't been super productive. I don't think it's a stretch to say he's probably ticketed for, for the bottom six for, for the long haul if he's in Detroit. Uh, so... You know that's kind of the situation there, and I think you know he's one of your, one of your many defensive center slash wingers, and you know like you said, you should have a few of those. But as of right now, he's doing it, and you know he must have been pretty close to the team lead and expected goals tonight. I thought he had a couple of nice looks offensively, actually. Um, but yeah, I think you know there's definitely not all fourteen are gonna be back. I think in that ballpark, nine or ten sounds about right to me. Hiroshi's one to watch because usually when a guy gets scratched twice, uh, if he's not back in the lineup that third game, you can kind of start to wonder if it's a if it's time for uh, be, be watching the the call up the what do you call it the uh, the press releases see if somebody's been sent down. Um, so that is something I'm very curious to see with Hiroshi if he's gonna is he gonna go to California, how they will approach that because you know. I, They've added now a couple of different guys who fit into the, the places in the lineup he was occupying. Perlini and now Fabry, like th- those are the middle six spots where you want Hiroshi. And if he's not filling one of those two, he's not on the power play. Uh, it's kind of tough to find a spot for him in the lineup. So that's something to watch in the coming days for sure. Uh, the next one is from Brandon, who asks for our thoughts and takeaways on the Grand Rapids prospects so far this year. Zadina, Valeno, Rasmussen. Cider, Smith, Larson, etc. Do you want to start here and then I'll uh, I'll go second? Yeah, so I'll preface my takes with I've only caught kind of a handful of highlights, clips of the Griffins games. I haven't really been able to sit down and, and watch um, a whole lot of their games thus far, but I've kind of peeked in at their stats, seeing how everybody's performed thus far. I think, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's exciting that some of the guys are starting to find it. I think Zadina, you know, you've stated this on previous uh, episodes that he looks like a more comfortable player on the ice. Um, he looks like a little bit more well-rounded, and now he's starting to find some scoring numbers. So he's got points in six of his last eight games. He's got four goals in that time frame. Um, I believe he's now third on the team in goals behind Pumple and Terry. Uh, so he's he's starting to rack up um, a little bit of production. Rasmussen, now that he's back from injury, I think has uh, scored well. He's got eight points in nine games. I mean, he's looking um, pretty comfortable in the role that he's been given. I think Valeno has probably struggled more than the other two, given that one, 
this is his first year uh, in the AHL compared to these guys. Zadina and Rasmussen had uh, time in the NHL and AHL in the previous season. So I think he's still in a little bit of an adjustment phase. But I think, to me, the real stud has been more at Cider. I think he's looked real comfortable on the power play quarterbacking from the clips that I've been able to see. Um, he's scoring at a excellent level. I think there are mistakes like, you know, Max, I'm sure you'll touch on that, you know, you would expect any 18-year-old defenseman to make. But overall, I think you have to be really pleased with how poised he looks with the puck. I mean, when you watch him play, it's almost like, why, why are you not moving faster? Why are you, why are you just kind of in this slow motion? But what it really is, is he's controlling the pace of play. And that's a, that's a really exciting thing to watch from an 18-year-old defenseman. Yeah, I went down there this week, and I thought uh, nobody looked great. I thought of, of the game that I was at, Giovanni Smith, maybe of, of those guys that, that I listed off earlier from the question, probably had the best game. Cider, it was like the good with the bad, right? Like he had a couple assists, but he also had a couple of turnovers that led to goals, or one was a turnover and one was, you know, he didn't get back very well. That was a weird game in which the Griffins, whoever they were playing that game, scored three shorthanded goals, and I don't think the coach was real happy with the overall uh, effort level of the power play there. So that maybe, maybe a weird one to have attended. Um, but you know, Zadina's couple goals, I want to make a note about this because they're not kind of your classic, like, you know, complete snipe the goalie or dangle anybody out. But I do think they're an important sign of progress in spite of that, because I think they're a sign that he's getting to the areas of the ice where a goal scorer can then benefit from a puck bouncing their way at the right time, right? One of them was a setup from Rasmussen. One of them was just kind of a puck that took a weird hop, and he was in the right spot in the crease to bang it home. That's actually pretty substantial, because I think you want to see him getting to those scoring areas. He can be so dynamic with his shot and with his vision to make a play to someone else that as long as he's in the right spot to benefit when he gets a bounce like that, it's great. But if he's waiting out by the perimeter, it's not great. So I think the the real positive takeaway from his scoring, even if the goals haven't been super highlight real goals, is that he's in those areas. That is something the Red Wings have wanted him to do. So that is a real sign of progress. I do think he looks improved from last year. Uh, it's kind of funny that the, the you know the plays that he gets the the points for versus the ones that he doesn't. But you know, I, that's part of the deal with being a goal scorer. And I, I think he could still stand to add some speed or explosiveness to whatever extent he can. That will help him a lot as he's trying to separate from from fast NHL defenders. But but what I've noticed the last time I was there is I think he's gotten better at making that move to create a little bit more space for himself. That's going to go a long way for him. Valeno, I think, still adjusting, but you know he's working really hard to to be engaged at both ends of the ice, and I think that's what what you want to see from Joe Valeno. Um, and then, yeah, Cider, I still think it, it looks pretty good. I think it's you know you're you're seeing the mistakes sometimes, but that's almost to be expected from a player that young. I mean, output wise, like he's on pace to have the best production season by an eight, 18 year old AHLer of any you know of the last like two decades, right? Isn't that what you what you found? Yeah, I mean, actually ever you know okay, 33 you <laughs> points is the uh is the ahl record for uh 18 year old defensemen so 33 points is the mark to beat i think the best uh points per game is 0. 0.64 uh by rasmus sandine last year and so again if he's able to stay on the pace that he's been he should challenge both that and the 33 points overall Larson, I haven't been that uh, blown away by yet, but it's still really early. He's still adjusting to a whole new level. We should probably take a look at some point when we can 
have a little bit more heads up notice to to look into the goaltending by age at, at the AHL level and see what's reasonable to expect from him. Um, I haven't been blown away by him or anything, but you know you got to give a guy like that time to you know more than five or six starts before you're really assessing him at a at a whole new level from from college to the American League. And then Chase Pearson's the other guy that you know didn't get mentioned in the tweet, but I I, I like Chase Pearson's game. I think he's never going to be like a elite scorer or top nine guy, but I think he's one of these guys who you down the line. Uh, would expect to be in the Red Wings lineup on the fourth line playing a, a pretty strong defensive game and maybe adding a little bit by being able to go to the net and, and get shots off. So I, I've been impressed by Chase Pearson as well. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up and, and let the people go? No, I think you, we've pretty much hit on everything and it should be an exciting Western Conference trip to see if the Wings can hang on to their recent results. Yeah, next time I... Uh, Based on Prashant's uh, tweeting out a couple of new Twitter polls, I suspect we'll have some new uh, fan data to analyze like we did with the the pending RFA uh, tradables last time. We got a couple of uh, what-would-you-pay-for polls out there. So hopefully we can uh, get some results in on that and, and discuss that on the next show. Uh, well, the Red Wings are out west. They're going to go play Anaheim, L.A., and San Jose this week. So three uh, th- three games that could really go either way based on the various positions of those three teams right now. Yeah, I mean, it'll be real interesting to see. Um, but, you know, the Wings struggled when they went out west the first time, uh, hoping for better results this time around. We will certainly see how it goes for them. I think, uh, you know, Anaheim and L.A., two of those teams that maybe before the season expected to finish right around them. Uh, so who knows what that means. They just beat Boston and Vegas, so I don't think we can make a whole lot out uh, out of the schedule or, or anything like that right now. But... That is it for us. We will talk to you guys next time. Uh, that'll be our midweek show. You can subs- you can listen to it by subscribing to The Athletic at www.theathletic.com slash wingsforbreakfast. That'll get you a 40% off promo code and keep you up to date with all things Red Wings and all things Wings for Breakfast. Thanks, everybody.